in three, two, one. <laughs> Welcome to another Mind Jam podcast and Boy, today I am hugely honored that we have the legendary Dr. Ian Dunbar with us today. Dr. Karen Becker, Dr. Dunbar, the training world is a complete different creature to myself. Uh, like I say, we delve in like health and nutrition. There is such emerging science showing how important training and longevity and health and the overall mental well-being. I wanted to ask you, you've been doing this for quite some time. So you've seen a few decades of the shift in behavior training. I mean, I, you know, I, I bought this I'm a huge junkie of all these old magazines now. Spratt. Oh, good Lord. James yeah. Spratt. These, like, I have a couple of these from the 1800s. Like, I collect these because I want, I want to know, you know, before the internet, how, you know, how, how information was and how nutrition was perceived back in the day. And believe it or not, these, these manuals also have a section on training. And it's so fascinating to see back then, like in the later part of the 1800s, you know, there's a, a little section in here that says, if your dog jumps, just hold him by his two front paws and step on his back feet to teach him a lesson to not jump on you anymore, which is very effective. How have or you him in the chest or flip him over backwards or, you know, grab him by the cheeks and rah, give him an out, you know, yeah, rubbish, silliness. How have you seen that, Dr. Dunbar? How have you seen this transformation from when you started until like right now, like looking through your lens? How have you seen this shift in training? Because from my world, I know that it's kind of divided and there's, you know, there's these different names. Like you have one name like called like positive training, the other one called dominance or alpha training. Like it seems like there's these two different worlds that are out there and well, they don't love each other. Um, no, it's a, you know, a lot of training is, it's very close to a religion. It's a belief. And so it, you get a lot of emotion. Uh, people disagree and they get angry when they disagree rather than um, talking about facts. And to me, if you're a trainer, then you're changing behavior. And this, of course, is observable and can be quantified. So I tell people, look, first, train the dog. And then uh, let's have proof of training. We test the dog. Then we calculate the speed of training. And then we can discuss how you got there. But what we have at the moment are arguments between people who are using, say, they're still jerking with metal leashes and they're shocking. Uh, we have people who only use food and kindness, yet neither of them are training the dog. If you, you look at these trainers, they're either still wearing a bait bag or they've still got a shock collar button in their hand. So my definition of training is that your dog's under verbal control at a distance when distracted without the continued need of any training aid whatsoever. Well, they haven't got there. So I tell them then you can't discuss training. Until you've trained a dog, then we can have a meaningful discussion. And of course, everyone would say, well, let's get there in the quickest way that's as pleasurable as possible for the dog and the owners. But seeing it develop, when I got into it, it, it was a very weird place. I mean, I was lucky. I grew up on a farm around animals all the time, and my father and grandfather used a technique which I named. It didn't have a name called lure reward training. You lured the animal to do what you want, and then you rewarded it for doing it. All the animals on the farm, the cows, the horses, 
I mean, my great-grandfather won a straight-line plowing contest, you know, one horse and a plow, with no reins. Everyone else is using yeah. reins to direct the horses. He used his voice. So I grew up with that. And um, so the, the way it went, uh, in the 80s and the 90s, I traveled everywhere lecturing about this stuff and doing workshops so people could see it, that you trained 12 puppies off leash, you know, and they learned, and, and people couldn't believe it. And one by one, they would come to me, and, and they were really upset because they knew what they had done was wrong, jerking the dog, hitting him, spraying him with vinegar and lemon juice, kicking him, kneeing him. And they just knew this whole sort of inhibitory technique, taking the dog out of the dog, was wrong, but they didn't know an alternative. And now they did. They felt terrible. And so I'd say, look, you know, the past was then. This is now. And then... The people using rewards just became, how should I put it, belligerent, and they wouldn't tolerate anyone else. Like, oh, you're, you're jerking. You're a horrible person. It wasn't the, let me show you a better way. And I tried to explain to them. I said, look, you used to do that too. Remember when I met you and we talked in the bar after the conference and I converted you from a leash jerker? You know, who all they did was punish dogs for misbehaving and ignoring all the good stuff into a puppy trainer that focused on all the good that dogs do and rewarding it. But they had no tolerance for, for other trainers and it became a very ugly, toxic place. And this even invaded the boards of the dog training associations. There's a whole lot of discord in the training community. And every time there's a difference of opinion, it's a little bit like religion, where every time there's a difference of opinion, people just started a new religion until you have so many different religions, you can find something that fits your viewpoint so that you can have relief. And that's kind of happened in the last 50 years with training. There's national training institutions. There's a dozen different organizations that have a dozen different viewpoints and theories and value systems and beliefs, and you can find something to line up with, with what you believe in. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get results. You've done a really fantastic job of engaging conversations with all of these groups, knowing as a scientist, a researcher, PhD, that they may not get results, but you still continue the discussion. And I admire that. Well, you see, my religion is results. It's be, I, I was trained as a behaviorist, uh, someone who observes and quantifies behavior. And then I became interested in operant. How you change the behavior. What are they doing? How much are they doing it? Can we change that so it's acceptable? So like clicker training would never become popular if they hadn't got a clicker. And now that has become a religion. And people just think clicker train without thinking a very slow way to train. Why don't we just lure reward? Now I'm finished teaching 10 behaviors. You're still working on one, you know? So it's a great training technique for teaching behaviors outside of the dog's normal behavior repertoire or fine-tuning behaviors, but it's not a way for pet owners to train the pet dogs. It's much too complicated and requires a, too much of a, a, a skill set. So to me, the religion is results. And so I always argue that. I, I don't even touch on the inhumanity of some aspects of dog training. So when I argue this stuff, I talk about ease and efficiency. 
to get the end results. And so, for example, when I go and lecture at, a, say, a conference where primarily all the attendees use shock collars, I don't say shock collars are bad. I will say if someone asks me, if they say, what do you think of electric shock? I say, I hate it. I am so sensitive to electric shock. I said, my dad wasn't. He would test the mains in England, 240 volts with his finger. Say, oh, yeah, it's on. Any little shock, step out of a car, it, it, I hate it. And I would never use it on an animal. However, I appreciate that some do. Let me tell you how to use shock in a way that's quicker, easier, so you're going to get the end results with only two shocks instead of the 10,000 you're giving. Because when they, the, the, you see the shock collar in the hands of someone who doesn't know how to train is a management tool to continually shock the dog. But there's no training taking place. Otherwise, by def, I mean, let's work this out. If the shock collar were a punishment, then the misbehavior would decrease in frequency, right? I mean, that is the scientific definition of punishment, right? It causes the immediately preceding behavior to decrease in frequency, eventually to zero at which point there's no need to punish shock anymore. So if you're still shocking after one trial, then the shock is not a punishment. You're not shocking, then what are you doing? Depends on the dog. With a Malinois, you're just harassing it, annoying it. But for Sheltie, you're frightening the living daylights out of it and torturing it. But you're not punishing. Don't argue that with me. You're not correcting either. If you correct it, there'd be no problem, there'd be no shock. So that's why I argue it. Let me show you how to make this process quicker. Here are all the ways you can shock a dog where it won't work. For example, let's say um, the dog's climbed up on your dining room table, you know, and then you shock him. What will the dog, dog learn there? Well, he'll learn don't climb up on the dining room table when the owner's in the room and I have this bloody great collar around my neck. No. If, on the other hand, you came in and looked at the dog and then went, Rover, off the table. Chop, 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 chop. Every time you say off the table now, the dog will jump off the table, so there's no need to shock it ever again because you warned it first. So if you don't warn prior to a non-instructive punishment, something physical, a shout, a slap, a shock, or what have you, then the dog can't learn, which is asinine, but he can't learn to avoid the shock, which is inhumane. And so I think now the secret to changing things um, is what you're doing, a podcast that gets a few hundred thousand views. That's incredible because we have to reach dog owners. They will then change the world of dogs because at the moment dog owners and puppies and dogs are getting the short end of the stick. And who do I blame? Dog professionals for not doing what they could be doing. Dr. Dunbar, you'd, you've done something pretty magical you know, you mentioned earlier that, of course, training is like religion. And, you know, we say it ourselves in our space, religion, politics and nutrition, there's nothing more visceral. And I'm sure training will equally be added into one of those categories. And it's very easy to see people with different techniques. And when you integrate money 
and business in with those techniques and having to put food on the table and now building a social media following, the pressures of the day-to-day can really disrupt communication. But you did something that was, when I was doing my research on you, like literally my jaw was on the ground because in the beginning, the media, I was reading an article by SF Gate that called you initially at that time the anti-Caesar Milan. But rather than attacking somebody else on a popular platform with a complete different technique than you, you did something that I believe that more people in this world need to do, which was you built a bridge between you and somebody else who had a complete different mindset or was on a different planet than you were when it came to the training world. I have a quote here that says, you said, I can do so much more good for dogs by engaging those who use dog training techniques of which I strongly disapprove rather than simply preach to the choir. There was an olive branch that you put out where Caesar Milan himself brought you into his book and allowed you to say things word for word. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I hope to inspire younger and future generations by what you did, because now with up and coming social media stars in the training world, you're seeing the divide of today, which was the divide of yesterday. And yet here's a veterinarian, a PhD, who builds a bridge. Everything I do with puppies is about people training. All that I've learned from teaching puppies, dogs, a different species um, has taught me about people, whether it's raising a child or motivating an employee or, or, or what. And, and I tell people, I tell dog trainers, you know, if you insult, belittle or demean an owner, then you've lost the opportunity to train the, train the dog. If you insult or demean or say you hate another dog trainer, you've lost the opportunity to educate thousands of dogs. And so when Cesar Milan came to me, his producer said, we're gonna change the, the, the nature of the program. And instead Caesar will be the host interviewing other trainers. Would I be willing to do it? And I thought long and hard because then people in, in the dog training world and were, were, they hated him. They thought he was a devil. And I thought, well, you know, will I trash my street cred and will I be hated if I do this? And then I, I talked with my, uh, the other two members of my triumvirate, my ex-wife and my son, and said, should I do this? And we all agreed, yes. Okay. On the morning it happened, they then said, no, we can't do this. We will be crucified. I said, no. I said, we're going to do it. And I don't work with contracts. I work with a handshake. I will do it because they have a much bigger platform than I'll ever have in my life. I missed out the opportunity of a big dog training program in this country. Maybe I'll do it when I'm 80. I don't know. Maybe Animal Planet will eventually think, well, his accent's not so bad. I thought, well, I'll do it. The platform's big. I talked to the producer. She was fantastic. And I said, look, if you're writing the words, if you're editing, can I see it before it goes up? Because having done my TV program, I know you can cheat. And you, and you can make a trainer look brilliant, and you can make a trainer look awful. Like the one, two, three, four of training is you show the problem, the dog misbehaving, then you show the training, okay? Then you show the solution, the dog's perfect, and then you show the owner, training you're wonderful. Well, often you just switch one and three. You come into the house, the dog's fairly okay, and he greets you, but after you train him in a horrible way, he bites you, so you put that up front. 
And you look like, so I knew that. And she did. She let me review all of the film and, and all of the written words. And it, it caused a stir. And I had to keep responding. But look at the platform I've got. And I thought, I feel secure enough to do this. But I did have one real tricky moment, well, two tricky moments. Because I really wanted to do a good job, I was terrible. And after 30 minutes of filming with American Bulldog, uh, Jamie and, and Kelly had an intervention and said, Dad, um, you were underwhelming. And I said, oh, no, I was terrible. And so um, I went to the producer and said, can we scrap what we've done? And I'll repeat it with Hugo, our French bulldog. And so I said to Hugo, I said, it's on the line, Hugo, your dad's entire reputation. And he hit that spot, man. And it's the best filming I've ever done. He was perfect for like 10 whole minutes. And I just talked over what I was doing as he was demonstrating everything. You know, it was just, it, it was amazing. But the next thing was, I knew Cesar was going to interview me. And I knew who was going to ask the question about our difference of opinion. And I thought, well, he's in my house and I'm English. You're not rude to house guests, you know. And but I so strongly disagree with so much that he does. So what do I say? And then it came to me. I was falling asleep one night, having a little scotch. And it came to me what I was going to say. And, and he asked me. Well, Dr. Dunbar, you know, methods are very different. So, you know, how do you reconcile that? I'll say, well, in a, a nutshell, Cesar, um, my grandfather, because he, he always talks about his grandpa, right? I said, my grandpa always impressed on me that to touch an animal is an earned privilege. It's not a right. And I guess I feel you're much too quick to put your hands on a dog. And in a lot of instances, I feel you frighten the dog. So I thought I was totally honest, but I said it in a nice way. And I think that quote is in the book, too, pretty much. And and like um, when I, you know, I trained Hugo and then he wanted to train Hugo or Dune and Kelly said, no, like this. <laughs> All right, Kelly, it's OK. You know, so I said, well, what about Claude? We had this big red coon hound. It was really not the smartest bulb in the string. So we showed how his one skill was hunting lettuce. If you a lettuce leaf anywhere, he would find it with his nose. So then, you know, Cesar says, well, can I train him? And I says, yeah, but train him with lettuce because he's not too keen on food. And I showed him how to do it. I said, hold the lettuce in your hand because if he sees a bit, he's going for it. And, you know, we rescued him because he bit people. So it, it could hurt, you know. And so he goes around the room. He's going, heel, sit, heel, sit. And then he says to camera, I feel like a Caesar salad, <laughs> you know, which I thought was hilarious, <laughs> hilarious. But I'm not going to get angry with him. He's come to my house. He's interviewing me. I'm part of his program. I'm getting this enormous platform. No, I'm going to now sell what I think is the right way to do it, using science and lots of rewards, letting the dog be a dog. To go back, to digress for a moment, your children told you don't go on the show. Like, this is crazy. Don't do it. And then... That fire in your belly, something inside you said, I have to do this, knowing that there could be potential repercussions. You know, those humans that stand out into the firing line for the greater good, knowing that they're going to be shot at, those, those are the people that I 
that fascinate me because there's going to be many people and there are many people and up and coming trainers today that I've seen sort of this transformation because of that, that Mary of the two philosophies, those moments that you had like one of those moments with Caesar Milan, there's these new age trainers that are coming out now that are either calling themselves um, integrative trainers, meaning they're using philosophies from both sides of the world. You have the, the term balanced trainer. It's almost like if on that day where you were willing to sit with somebody who had a complete different belief system, you married a new training technique. So my question, what happened after that day to you? Because there's going to be people that hear this podcast that you're going to inspire to reach out to that other trainer that they don't maybe agree with, but they say, you know what, if Dr. Dunbar did it, then I should be able to do it. What happened after that? Was there, like, did you lose friends? Did you have people say to you, I don't ever want to talk to you again? Did you have people say that was the greatest thing you ever did and I want to do it? When it comes to disagreements about dog training, I, I'm there right away on our website, um, even our public page. I, I do it once a week. I go through and respond to every comment, uh, smooth the waters, and I explain why I did this or said this. Like um, a, an immediate reaction is, why are you always talking about puppies? Don't you know there's thousands of dogs that die in shelters? I come back and say, I always talk about puppies because every shelter dog was once a puppy where we, as dog professionals, failed. Whatever reason. You know, and so I come over and explain it, and I found that people really like this. The angrier they are, the more they like it. But I especially have always responded to animosity or anger or criticisms um, in all the businesses I've done. One, because I, I don't like them. But I don't get angry back. It's very difficult to argue with me. I, I, I just don't argue. I'm not going to argue with you as a, someone I've just met and as a friend. I'm not going to argue with you. It's not what I want to do. And if you, uh, my son, Jamie, who now is, what, 33, soon be 34, how many arguments have you had with your dad? He would say zero. Now, he's not a wuss of a kid. No, you know, he, he can be quite, we have disagreements of opinion. We handle them like grown-ups, and we've done that since he was a kid. But I've never had, I've never raised my voice with him. Never. I don't want to do that. And so, one, I, I don't like animosity. I want to smooth it over, and I step back. I do take a breath <laughs> before I type. And I think, well, of course they would be upset what I said there. They're volunteering in a shelter. It's everything to them. And I would say, no, I understand it. We, I've done it twice in my life, created a shelter program, and I found the only solution is 500 volunteers. You can't do it on your own. In any, any shelter, for me, what makes a good shelter, there's more people there than dogs. And there's more dogs outside of their cages than in the cage learning to be hyperactive and pee and poop in their living area and so on. And so seeing things from the dog's point of view allows me to see things from other people's point of view because I am very aware that I am very pushy when I, I, I come across as being like a maniac. When I believe in something, my face changes. And I, when I see myself on video, Ian, you look like an axe murderer, you know. But I'm just passionate about this and explaining it 
and I have to, you know, I must learn to be quiet for a while and listen. Um, you know, I, I love difference of opinions because that's how you do learn. I mean, the same old, same old every day. Come on. You know, I want challenge. Like, how do I do this with a deaf, blind dog and I'm in a wheelchair and I have no friends? You know, I want that challenge and I'll, I'll find a way to do it. Ian, where do you where do you see in, You know, you've had this magnificent career where you've seen new trends in dog training that have failed, new trends that have worked, hybridized trends that sometimes work. You've really, in your career, you've really seen the gamut of a lot of different theories and techniques come and go. Where do you see dog training headed? Gradually, dog trainers got scared of training dogs off leash. And if you look at even puppy classes now, you will find, if you find one where the puppies are off leash, it's only for 20, 30% of the time. The rest of the time they're on leash, the owner's sitting on a chair listening to the trainer lecture. Whereas our puppy classes are off leash for 55 minutes because that's how you live with the dog at home. Because they don't have them off leash, the puppies don't get socialized. And as soon as we get this dog-dog reactivity, I, I would say people and trainers are very concerned, very frustrated, but scared to let the dogs just do what is absolutely normal. I mean, I have four dogs around me right now. I gave them all bones to chew, but you may hear an argument. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'll say, excuse me, shush, and that will be the end of it. But when a dog goes, whoa, 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 people, oh, my God, no, he's reactive. I can't let him. So now they split the dogs up. Or in puppy class, they'll time out the dog for 10 minutes. And so because the dog dogs aren't off leash, well, we can't teach them all the stuff they have to know. And so I think the biggest problem was so-called positive dog, dog trainers. I like to call them science-based dog trainers who primarily are using reward-based techniques. I hate the term positive uh, because it's very ambiguous because you have the term positive punishment. You know, positive means not only uh, good, it also means you start something, whether you start rewarding positive reinforcement, we all know that, but there's positive punishment. So it's a very ambiguous term. And I know that a lot of these totally positive dog trainers actually aren't that nice with their clients. The dialogue is, oh, then you sh shouldn't have a dog. Well, if you lose the client, you've lost the opportunity to train the dog. So I think the biggest thing that happened, sadly, is gradually positive dog trainers forgot to train the dog. And I see this now with the laborious methods they come out with, like, okay, get your clicker and you'll click a thousand times over three months and maybe we'll get these dogs playing again. Uh, excuse me, I go in there and 60 minutes later the dogs are playing and not only with this reactive dog, I say, well, we'll bring him home with us for a while to live with five dogs. You know, the speed of dog training has disappeared. So I made a decision about 10 years ago, and it was a very sad one. And I thought that I've spent my life educating dog professionals. Now I'm going to educate dog owners. I'm going to bypass them. And I think uh, if we take the example of, say, breeders, I think we need to reverse the process 
rather than breeders being like holier than thou and, oh, you want to get buy one of my dogs, then you must do this, you must be this, we reverse it. So the breed says, uh, can I see the socialization log, please? Oh, you mean it hasn't seen any people? Well, it's eight weeks old. The critical period of socialization is, you know, two-thirds over. This is ridiculous. It's not house-trained. What are you doing? And so then the buying public will be able to, to vote with its checkbook. And so breeders will have to come round. Vets will have to come round. I mean, you're a vet. I'm a vet. How many still say, don't send your puppy to puppy class? Let me rephrase that. What should they be telling every puppy owner saying, wow, you know you've only got four weeks left to socialize this puppy safely at home. Four nights a week you have a party, 12 people come. Lots of men, lots of children, handling the puppy, training the puppy. Then we wouldn't have the number one question that every veterinarian asked me at a conference. What do I do with an adult dog that's trying to take my face off? Well, you should have done the right thing, or it's an eight-week-old puppy coming to you. So I, I have to ask you, pertaining to longevity, one of the key things today, and they find this in the human field, Dr. Dunbar, is if you were to put like genetics and nutrition and all those things on the side, a very rich social life is critical for longevity. The Sardinians and all the way over in Italy that have the most sanitarians, 100-year-old live people. I, I think all the blue zones. All the blue zones. All zone. the blue zones. A rich social life is critical. What do, you, what do you know today about longevity and training? Well, in, in the groups you're, you're mentioning, there's two things. That a rich social life, which every dog should have. Every dog should have a core social group of, of dogs they don't have to get along with every dog at the dog park, but they should have five dogs that they've known since puppyhood and they meet at least once or twice a week. And they need a core social group of humans. You know, we, you know it's, it's unrealistic to expect dogs to get along with every dog. Humans can't even get along with every human, for heaven's sake, right? Especially if they're a dog trainer, you know. So let's be realistic. So that's a give. So back to longevity in dogs, this is my big bugabear. And I'll, I'll try and do this briefly without crying because it upsets me so much. When a prospective puppy buyer buys a puppy, the notion is I'm getting it from a breeder. All breeders are good. No, by definition, half of breeders will fall below median, right? As will any professional. Half of veterinarians are below medium. You watch them at vet college you know, hamming up so-called operations. Half are above median. Some are excellent every profession, but they believe that any breeder is excellent. And then the breeder talks down to them, you know, holier than thou, high horse type of stuff. And then they end up buying an eight week old puppy that is not house trained. I mean, this stuff gets really scary. It's not house trained at eight weeks. What was that breeder doing? It's not chew toy trained. Why is that important? because that prevents destructive chewing, excessive barking, and separation anxiety. It doesn't even know how to sit, let alone lie down, come, roll over, heal, and walk on a leash. It's only been socialized to three people, all women at the kennel, all middle-aged women at the kennel. It should have met 100 people prior to eight weeks of age, mostly children and men. Critical period of socialization ends at eight weeks. But here's the killer. 
not only will that dog definitely start to become fearful when it's five to eight months old. You see, it appears totally friendly as a puppy. It's a puppy, but normal development is fears and phobias don't develop till later in life. So the insufficient socialization starts to show five to eight weeks, slow to approach, head ducking, doesn't want to be handled, eventually biting the veterinarian when they try to clean its ears or clip its toenails. But don't worry about it because the dog's going to die when it's five. My first Malamute purebred died at five. Two other purebreds dead at seven. The latest Zuzu Abosaron broke my heart. Dead at seven. This is ridiculous. Why is this? Because there's no selective pressure at all to breed for longevity, because it's not needed in the dog world. When dogs are bred for show, their career is over by four or five years. If it's bred as a working dog, it's over by four, five, or six, or seven years. Bred as an obedience dog, it's usually not working anymore by two, or its career is over by four. The dog fancy doesn't want dogs to live a long time, because then you have to feed them while they're 13, 15, 17. And I met someone the other day with a 20-year-old dog. I think, and this is the big part of my program, when owners know how to select a dog, that will likely enjoy some sunset years, and if you're a newfie, at least make it till you're 14 and not be dead at seven, not dying of cancer when you're seven as a golden or a boxer, I mean, or a cavalier King Charles, your brain explodes when you're two, you know? How do we do this? So I develop what I call a longevity index. This is the average age of a puppy's great-great-grandparents at death. So we, we were both invited to do TED Talks in Mexico City, and we, we wanted to talk about longevity because there's data, the Morris Foundation with the $25 million Golden Retriever project that's currently underway. When you talk to the veterinarians of the 70s, Dr. Michael Lappin, who's part of the Morris Foundation $25 million project, he practiced in the 70s. He said, the average veterinarian saw golden retrievers walk in through that door that lived to be 17 years old. And today, oh, yeah. you're yeah. lucky if they live to be eight or nine. So you've witnessed that. You've seen that. Tell me, yeah. is that true? Like, Because my generation don't know that. We only know nine-year-old dogs. Have we seen a decline in lifespan because of this breeding and all of these issues you're talking about from the 70s to today? Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember one of the most dramatic moments of my very short veterinary career was um, explaining to a man um, who was 70 and his dad that we had to euthanize their dog because every system is failing. Uh, the dog was 19. And I said, the best thing is we euthanize him here. And his father, who's 90-odd, started crying. And then the old man, who's 70, started crying. And I started crying. But no dogs lived to an – it was amazing. Whenever you selectively breed for anything, whether it's work um, or confirmation, everything else goes by the by. And so my simple solution to that is, okay, selectively for breed for what you want. But don't breed any male dog unless he's 10. I proposed this to the International Congress of Kennel Clubs in the early 80s. 
a very weird organization. Only three people came from each kennel club around the world. They only had three speakers, one selected by the obedience club, one by the kennel club, one by the Humane Society. That year, all three were behaviorists. I remember it was Roger Brantis, Roger Mugford, and myself. And we all gave the same speech, essentially. You've got to socialize puppies and don't breed the male dogs when they're two. In an afternoon, they can sire a hundred puppies. Heaven forbid they win Crufts or Westminster or Credit Valley or what's the big show in Canada? What do you? I don't even watch them, but whatever the hell it is. I didn't mean to throw that at you. But heaven forbid a male dog wins a show, he could destroy a breed in one weekend. You know, a, a male dog can make four or five times a day when he's two years old well and and not you know? to mention well and not to mention that we're shipping that semen if a do if a male two-year-old dog wins westminster we ship that semen all over the world i mean that's exactly why the golden retriever crashed right that we we shipped we shipped that we shipped semen from winnering dogs that were six years of age and died of lymphoma and but interestingly dr dunbar recent research has just come about that telomeres continue to develop in male dogs much past adulthood that we thought. It stemmed down from the human, the human research showed that older men that had babies, they passed on that longevity gene. The telomeres, so the, the little, for people that don't know, the little tiny end caps on your DNA, what science says is the longer the telomere in science, the longer that you're going to live. And that when you were young, so it, for instance, in the dog world, the two-year-old puppy or the two-year-old dog, adult dog, whatever you want to consider them, well, these got short telomeres. And by three, they're longer. By four, they get even longer. By five, they get even longer. And the longer that the telomere becomes, the longer the dog lives. Then that dog breeds and passes down those long telomeres onto his offspring. So you saying that you believe that you know that these dogs it should start breeding around 10 years old is mind-blowing to me because it's it's prefacing what science is saying today it's validating what science is saying today that the longer that you wait you will be passing on longer telomeres onto your offspring whether human or it, it, whether dog it, it validates what nature says too and the, the single biggest criticism to this from breeders is but oh but you'll have a low sperm count then then collect the sperm whenever you like, at seven years. What is the optimal age to collect sperm seven years and then save it till he's 10? Because we need proof positive he made it to 10. Owners will now know the questions to ask the breeders. I want to see the longevity index. I want to know I'm getting a companion dog that will likely live for a long time. But when owners know how they're being cheated, especially if they want, say, a cavalier, um, like, you know, was it BBC Pedigree Dogs Exposed, that documentary? Everyone Google it. It is shocking what is happening out there. And owners need to know. And I think when owners know, they will drive breeders and breeders will have to acknowledge we are breeding companion dogs, some of which we may show. As opposed to we're only breeding our show dogs and the rejects will be pet. I find it shocking that how dog owners get screwed. I really do. And I find it equally shocking how their dogs and puppies get screwed. And it has to change. I did, I did selfishly 
have one last question, and I don't know if it's in your courses or not, which would be how your techniques have evolved with the changing of the environment. You know, Dr. Dunbar, there's so many questions pertaining today to, you know, there's research showing that if a dog's gut biome is off, that that affects the dog's overall cognitive mentality. If the dog is sleeping beside the rotor, EMFs and uh, pesticides, lawn pesticides, dogs going outside, sitting in uh, and marinating and fertilizer come back in. Is Do you find that your techniques need to evolve or a trainer's techniques need to evolve with the changing environment? Because the environment of the 70s and the environment of today are completely different. Well, yeah, I, but I think more so the social environment had, has put some severe constraints on puppy raising. There's not too many places you can take a puppy now. Like back in England, you couldn't go in a pub without seeing three to five there. Now you're lucky if you see one. I mean, that would be my classic example because we had a drinking game in a pub crawl. And you go into a pub and you had to drink as many beers as dogs were there, you know. But anyway, that was back in the student days. Um, I think in terms of health-wise, some things like food, nutrition, owners are pretty savvy about, and they're more savvy about what their dog eats than what they eat. They actually read the label on dog food. And then while they're at a dog show, stuffing their face with a donut, you know, with cream on it. Um, but I think the constraints of access that now I've had to come up with lots of ideas. I was just thinking, I'm making a list the other day of, of ideas we came up with along the way, obviously off-lease puppy classes. Then next came uh, doggy daycare, then puppy daycare, and core social groups, and growl class. So you see how the, how the trend's going. It's to now rehabilitate the dogs have been screwed up because we can't take them everywhere. And so... I really promote socialize your dog safely at home. When you have a puppy, you it should be grand central. Literally, there's a party four nights a week. You want children. You want music. You want noise. You want everyone handling the puppy, all the hotspots on its body. So you've got 13 hotspots or bite triggers, little things that you do with a puppy and give a treat. Now he loves, but little things if you do with an adult dog, he'll bite you, like staring in his eyes, touching his ears trying to clip his nails, hugging him too tightly, you know. So part is in the home to make up for the fact that we can't take the dog everywhere, but you can put him in a little carrier you can put over your shoulder and go to the bank, and you can go to um, the hardware store, a great place to have men feed your dog. You just open the thing and his dog nose comes through and you're going to have 50 men hand feed him. Now your dog loves men. Stand outside a schoolyard with your puppy, in, but no puppy on the ground, obviously. Safe socialization. But, yeah, I've always had to come up with now we have doggy daycare because you didn't know how to train the dog to enjoy time at home alone when you were at work. And then core social groups because your dog's getting reactive. Well, at least give him a group that he gets along and can be a dog. And eventually all this stuff I've done in the last month on dog-dog reactivity. And so I film myself, you know, real-time training. Here's a dog that's reactive. You know, woo, 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 woo. look at him now. Well, I've got 40 minutes gone by. Now he's quiet and calm and sniffing dogs. So I have to film real-time training because explaining it doesn't work. You've got to see it be done. And now quantifying the training too. So I think, yeah, training is always trying to play catch up 
for the social constraints now on socializing a dog and and, and teaching off-leash control because dogs can't be off-leash in so many places and they can't go to so many places. Um, but otherwise, I, I think with pollutants in the environment, people are savvy to that. New nutrition, people are pretty savvy to that more so in their own health. They're worried about pollutants in the environment while they're smoking a cigar and drinking scotch. True. But what a life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're clearly doing something right. <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's working for you. Dr. Dunbar, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Coming on the Mind Jam podcast with Dr. Karen Becker and myself, sharing all of your knowledge. What a what an incredible conversation. Um, you are a bridge builder, my friend, and an inspiration to a lot of up and coming young future trainers or people within the, the health industry, veterinarians, whoever the case may be. Um, I want to I want to salute you for all the work you've done over the years and what you're still continuously doing which just speaks of the, the, the human creature that you are, just always excelling and evolving. Um, thank you again so much for your time. Well, I have to say, the two of you are wonderful. I mean, I've obviously been interviewed a lot. You had very sort of deep, perceptive, insightful questions. And it, for me, it just, it's, I love doing this, but I especially love doing it with you two guys. So call on me any time. My only hope is next time you'll see an ocean behind me and more palm trees and yeah. Well, we are very excited. Uh, your commitment to dogs living their best lives and helping owners create an environment for dogs to live happy, fulfilled lives. Your commitment to that, you'll be doing this in, for as long as you're on the planet, that I know. And I appreciate that your techniques, how you are presenting the information, it evolves with you as society and dog ownership is evolving. And you're doing a fantastic job of not only building bridges, but helping this next generation of pet parents build a relationship with their dog that is lifelong and fulfilling and meaningful meaningful for both of them and i just appreciate your your commitment to doing that as a professional but also that's just who you are as a dog lover thank you thank you of course you had to trump my of course you had to trump my my how awesome he is with your how awesome he is okay uh.